brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. Today on the show, we have Gabe Kramer, um, a friend of mine that knows a lot about South Africa, and we're going to talk about Nelson Mandela and South Africa. Um, this is being recorded, oh, actually, it was recorded the day after he died, Nelson Mandela. Anyways, it is currently 29 degrees in Fort Worth, Texas, and 28 degrees in Harrisburg. So I'm going to give that to Harrisburg for winning, being that um, those are basically equal temperatures. And why would you want to live in Fort Worth, Texas, other than it not being cold? But it's cold there, so you lose today. Okay, today's show, as I said, is going to be about Nelson Mandela. I got Gabe talking about that in South Africa. So it's a long talk, and it's a great talk. He's a very uh, intelligent, knowledgeable guy about it. We're not going to have time for letters, and I know there's a bunch that I need to get to, so that'll be next, the next episode. And there's not going to be time for The World Turned Upside Down, which I know is many folks' favorite segment of the show about 17th century England. But I do want to talk about um, two important issues before I get to the sponsor and then on to Gabe's talk. And uh, one is a personal issue about a health issue that I had, I mentioned um, briefly, which I'll get to. But I want to talk about ALEC. Now, do people know what ALEC is? Okay, time for some politics and some news. ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Now, this is uh, making some news. There's a great Terry Gross Fresh Air about it that just came out. And then there's a bunch of um, articles in The Guardian by um, Ed uh, Pilkington. Now, um, it's uh, a group that brings together, like, state legislators and representatives of corporations. It's like a right-wing, very ultra-conservative um, lobbying group. And it writes legislation, wines and dines politicians to try to push through without public discussion and without debate and without citizen input Legislation that is really hurting the public. Now, what type, what type of legislation? Well, how about um, screwing over the environment, climate change type of stuff? So um, they are opposing state reg- you know, regulations that reduce global warming gas initiatives. Um, they are trying to cut taxes. Oh, we think that's good, but really it's cutting taxes on the, the ultra-wealthy, and they want to reduce... Um, public employee compensation. They want to um, gut uh, public pensions. And this is all occurring when we have, over the last 20, 30 years, an increase in economic inequality. And so, you know, I would like to cut the, the wages of the ultra-wealthy and hedge fund managers and all that, but no, let's cut the wages of the working class uh, public sector worker. That's that's their goal. Um, they want to privatize uh, education. They oppose Medicaid expansion. They oppose Medicaid in general. Medicaid, as we all know, is the uh, health insurance for the ultra poor. So somebody that's working at Walmart or McDonald's does not qualify for Medicaid because you make too much money. (laughs) So it's just really for like the poor, super poor folks. Um, Okay, and I'm going to play a little clip here that uh, a group did kind of explaining kind of a comedic thing. It's probably better on video, and I'll put a link up on the SoundCloud site, but I, I wanted to say the, the organization is funded by, now if you heard this, now listen to this one, if you heard 
this is like a Tea Party group, you know, very conservative. If you heard this group was funded by, hold on, this is going to be funny. <laughs> okay. This group's funded by, let's see, the, they have a war chest of $83 million by the Koch brothers, the tobacco company Philip Morris, the food giant Kraft, and the multinational drug company GlaxoSmithKline. Which is all one word, but Glaxo Smith has a um, capitalized uh, S, and then K is capitalized. Glaxo Smith Klein, which I just find—I never heard of that organization. To me, it just—it doesn't sound very wholesome and American pie and uh, loving. Uh, doesn't it sound evil? <laughs> like, oh, I work for Glaxo Smith Klein. Um, I have America's interests at heart. So though the though the those are the major corporations that are funding Alec. And um, honestly, people, do you think this organization is trying to help working class, middle class, whatever, Americans achieve a better life? Or are they trying to pass legislation to increase the profits of these multinational, multi-million dollar corporations that have no interest in... Uh, at this point, when you're that big and even producing a quality product, really just of making more profit and making money. Um, so anyways, let me play this clip, and then we'll get on to my uh, health concern and my public service announcement, and then we'll get on to the Nelson Mandela. Oh, I should just set this up. This is uh, a YouTube clip called Rock Alec, and it's basically a takeoff of that 1970s How a Bill Becomes a Law where, you know, you have citizen input and they take it to the legislator and all that jazz. And uh, this is where Alec kind of comes in and runs over uh, the bill, Jump literally right, with the car. So you hear that door slamming. Alec's the name, and you better not have scratched the limo, pal. See, it works like this nowadays. Bunch of corporations get together and get tax write-offs for bankrolling a, a charity called the American Legislative Exchange Council. Sounds pretty official, huh? Then they schmooze and booze a whole lot of politicians from states all over the country at posh hotels. Corporate bucks also buy scholarships for politicians, if you're a scholar of drinking scotch, smoking cigars, and playing golf at a resort. So now there's suddenly one big happy family, the corporations, the lobbyists, the politicians. They all get together far away from your citizens and voters, and the unelected lobbyists secretly vote with the politicians, as equals, of course, on the things the corporations want to do. Like, uh, get clean air and water rules, raise your credit card rates as high as they want, crush them democratic unions, make it easier to get away with shooting people, and profitize, <clears throat> privatize schools, prisons, bail, immigration, and what have you. Hell, they privatized their own mothers. So once the politicians have been wined and dined, a little campaign contribution here, a good time there, the politicians, <clears throat> legislators, head back to their capitals or Congress and fast-track as many of these bills as they can. And here I am, a model Alec Bill, soon to be law. It's a hell of a lot easier and more fun than how you used to do it with all those regular old citizens and meddling media watching your every move. Face it, you washed up. Corporations have made government of the people obsolete, Bill. It's a thing of the past. What do you have to say for yourself, you old dreamer? Please help. 
and the bill's like under the car. Ground on you right here. It's a cart too. Put you out of your misery. I don't know why the. <laughs> I don't know why the bill sounds like a, a droopy dog or whatever that guy's name is from uh, the Hanna Barbera cartoons. Anyway, so enough on Alec. Okay. I had a health concern. And I have not talked about this a lot, but I did. And I want to say, people, please go to the doctors. If you have any sort of concern or worry, go to the doctors. Listen, my mom died of breast cancer when she was 53. But because she went to the doctors, she didn't die when she was 37. Yes, she had a breast cancer when she was 37. It bought her, whatever that is, 15 more years. So that was good. And... I had a lymph node removed from my neck several years ago. I'm very hypervigilant about this. I'm worried I'm always going to have cancer because I have bad genes. My mom died at a young age, as did uh, like four of my aunts of cancer. So I'm doing a ball exam, touching my balls, okay? Um, and I'm touching my balls, and I'm like, what? What is that? What is going on? And... um. It's kind of deep in there on the right ball, right testes. I feel like a thing about this. It's like in between the size of a pea and a marble. Now, being a medical professional as a nurse, I was immediately, you know, there was a part of me that was like terrified, but then I knew that it wasn't on the ball itself. So I was sort of new, like, oh, this isn't going to be that. I think I know what this is. It's probably just some sort of cyst, some calcification. And now I also, I got to thank a friend because he shared with me his ball experience where he had something on his ball and he had to go get a, you get an ultrasound, they put some goo on your balls. They look at it. A radiologist reads it and says, don't worry about it. Now, if it's on your actual testes now this was more in my sack i hope this isn't getting too uh but honestly this is serious because you could die from this right um if it's actually on the ball itself that's more of a problem but they could just take the one ball out and you could be like one nut crook you know john crook the first baseman for the phillies who's now a, a commentator for the uh, uh espn so anyways i went to the doctors i went to got an ultrasound some dude put a bunch of goo on my uh sack <laughs> <laughs> and um, we just, it was odd. It was certainly odd. Um, and then he just like looked at it, blah, blah, blah. There's just a little nodule in there. And um, later that day, like, hey, it's nothing to be worried about. Just monitor it. Now, my buddy said he's had this procedure done three or four times, I think, where he's been going back every six months. And he's like, they always say, like, don't worry about it. If it gets bigger, alert us. But um, it's not painful or anything like that. So I'm in the clear. Thank you for all your emails and your prayers and all that stuff. I'm fine. I don't have ball cancer. But this should be a lesson. Peace of mind I got. If you have any concerns, go to the doctor. Get it checked out. You could be saving your life. You could, you know, you got a lot to live for. You know what I mean? You got your family. You got your friends. You got the PRC show to listen to. You got um, the sporting events you like to go to and follow. You got the news. You got your cat. You got your dog. Maybe you have... Um, um, I don't know. What else is there to live for, really? Uh, beers and stuff and good food, all that jazz. Um, so that's my announcement. Um, do some exams on yourself. And for God's sake, how old are you? How old are you listening to this? When's the last time you've been to the doctor? 
Now, I'll tell you what. The one thing I'm bad about is going to the dentist. I need to do that. But I do get my lab work done and all that stuff. So please get yourself checked out. Go to the doctor. Now, we're going to um, do uh, – let's move on to our uh, sponsorship. As you all know, the show is sponsored by all the books that I own but I haven't read. And this week, the show is sponsored by Europe and the People Without History by Eric R. Wolf. I got to admit, it's a bit of a dense read. Um, it's a economics, history, anthropology type book, kind of a book about uh, pre modern capitalist uh, development. And let me just read a little summary here. It says, Eric Wolf challenges the long-held anthropological notion that non-European cultures and peoples were isolated and static entities before the advent of European colonialism and imperialism, ironically referred to as the people without history by Wolf, these societies before active colonization possessed perpetually changing reactionary cultures and were indeed just as intertwined into the process of the pre-Columbian global economic system as the European counterparts. Utilizing Marxian concepts in a vivid consideration of the importance of history, Wolf judicially traces the effects and conditions in Europe and the rest of the known world, in quotes, beginning in 1400 AD, that allowed capitalism to emerge as the dominant ideology ideology of the modern era. Now, doesn't that sound like a riveting, exciting read? <laughs> well, you know, I got to be honest with you. I read about 74 pages of this and I tuckered out. It was a slog, but I will try to read this soon. Um, and I mean soon, I mean the next 10 years if I make it. So um, read if you can. This isn't one of those books that's just, you know, who knows how many they made of these, maybe 5,000. Um, this isn't a book that you can find anywhere. But if you find this book in a used bookstore and you see it there for 10, 15, 5 bucks, you pick this book up and then you email the PRC show at prcshow at gmail.com. You read at least 50 pages of it, please. Email the show what you think. And if you can get through all, oh man, 420 pages, and then there's like a ton of pages of uh, all the references and stuff like that. You know, let me know what you think. Let me maybe give me a summary of it, and then I won't have to read it. Okay, now on to our talk about Nelson Mandela with Gabe Kramer. Okay, I have Gabe Kramer here. Um, on the show today, and we just lost a living legend. Uh, Nelson Mandela passed away yesterday at the age of 95, and like, I'm going to say, like most people where I work, we don't know much about Nelson Mandela. I work in Central PA at a hospital, so... We have the great fortune of having on the show Gabe, who was in South Africa in 1994 during the first democratic elections, which is crazy. That is very fascinating to me. Um, but uh, I would like to get, if Gabe, if we could just get a thumb sketch of South African history. <laughs> well, here's what we know. Here's what I know. 
is that uh, Nelson Mandela was in prison for nearly 20 years. 25? 27 years. 27 years. Oh, my God. You know, and here's the thing about Nelson Mandela. Um, and this is what everybody says. If I was in jail for 27 years for some bullshit, basically trying to make the world a better place, I would come out of that prison so pissed. I would want to be violent. But I don't know. Maybe it breaks you down. I don't know. I would be very upset. He sort of took a very opposite approach, which makes him an almost saintly figure. And I'd want to touch upon this for a minute. Saintly figures, I'm not a religious person. There's only a couple, uh, you know, I do have a view about saintly people. Basically, musicians, people that can create, well, or artists, people that can create great pieces of art, music that can almost bring me to tears or bring so much joy to my life. I think that is like a saintly type of thing. Like they have great DNA. They uh, have great genetics. They work really hard. That's why I love being human. And um, great world leaders or political leaders, people that uh, try to alleviate human suffering, make the world a better place. Hey, let's, uh, or, or even scientists, uh, Jonas Salk or you know Abraham Lincoln, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King. Um, uh, let's throw anybody else in there that we uh, like. Um, so I was, I w- John Lennon, great musician, uh, created great uh, art. Um, Nelson Mandela is uh, that type of saintly figure, I think, right? Am I wrong? So in the list that you just made, I think the best comparison with is with Abraham Lincoln. And I'll, I'll put it to you this way. One of the funniest things and, and the truest things I've seen on, on Facebook in the aftermath of uh, the death of Mandela is a headline from The Onion, of course, <laughs> which is, I can't quote it exactly, but the, the effect that um, uh, Mandela has become the first politician to be missed. And w- what struck me about that that's so right, and, and why I think the, I, I would pick Lincoln from Cause your Because they, po- they were politicians. They weren't, uh, they weren't so much no, of... No, uh, no they absolutely were politicians. Yeah, I like this. But thought, they, yeah. they were politicians of um, world historic genius who advanced a particular cause and a set of issues but in, in such a way to transform a society uh, and to do it in a way that um, left marks that people would be talking or about l- centuries later. And I'll put it another way. They were politicians in the sense that people that were supporters of theirs or people that view were for the cause that they were supposedly on, which th- um, felt that they sometimes sold out or weren't doing enough, but yet they still did... They made the decisions that they had to make in order to achieve major gains. And we see this in that Lincoln movie, and everyone that's read the books, it says, oh, you know, Lincoln, he's not doing enough, blah, blah, blah. But look, look what happened. You know, he did the right things to sort of, uh, you know, slavery was abolished. And people with Mandela thought he was probably not doing enough. That the Because um, compromise is part of the deal. you got to compromise. So the, the, the Steven Spielberg Lincoln film, we just watched for the first time the other day. Which is, by the way, a great play that is a film. Doesn't that seem like a play? It w- well, it's, it's, it seems like a play because r- the screenplay is by Tony Kushner. right? And, and, but the, what, what's so fantastic about it is it takes a relatively narrow period of time and looks at the complexity of trying to pass the 13th Amendment. So I think that um, th- the period of time of Mandela's leadership between coming out of prison, well, you could say even while he was in prison, and 
setting the strategic course for the African National Congress and uh, the mass democratic movement um, to end uh, white supremacist rule uh, in South Africa, and to take that through coming out of prison, engaging in negotiations with the incumbent um, white supremacist party, take that through um, democratic elections and into the creation of a new state with a new constitution is an accomplishment on um, of, of sort of Lincoln-esque uh, content. I mean, but it, it, it's a little... Right. It's I'm going to put the pause on the hero worship here for a second here. I mean, I know he's still a hero, but aren't we forgetting some other actors when we kind of, uh, you say the whole, you're putting all this praise on one person. There's, there's other uh, actors and organizations that are sort of facilitating this. Am I not right? Well, when um, Mandela came out of prison, he, he gave his first speech in Cape Town, and he only spoke to his supporters for about 20 or 25 minutes, and the first 10 or 15 minutes is him systematically walking through the entire mass democratic movement of um, organizations from students to trade unions to communists, to everyone and allies and uh, supporters around the world who had made it possible to wear down the apartheid system. So that not just that he was possible to come out of prison, but it was possible to imagine that that system would end. Um, and like a history lesson. Well, he, he was placing himself in the context of a democratic movement, of a, of a, right. cl of a collective process. I'm so a figure, no, you're, okay. so you're, you're absolutely right. No, and I'm not saying he was some sort of egotistical... Uh, no, I, I mean, on, on the contrary. I think that's how he understood his own leadership. I mean, he was... Um, well, he had a lot of time to ruminate on it. <laughs> he, 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 he did. And it's not that he was with, without pride. I mean, I think he sure. was a very proud and um, very um, strong-willed person, but I think someone who understood that it was possible for him to play this role of leadership that I think he believed was his right, based on his sort of capacities, but also because of the sacrifices that so many people had made to create a society that, that he wanted to create. Um, okay, so one of my coworkers said the other day that there's all this Nelson Mandela, actually yesterday, because I work night shift, there's a lot of Nelson Mandela talk on TV, and I know he did a lot of great things and stuff or whatever, but um, it's getting a little oversaturated. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to help me have a little conversation with my coworker and my co-workers about Nelson Mandela and what he, you know, just a little brief history and say, hey, this is why this guy's a good guy. This is why we should be like, this is a uh, inspiration for humanity type of thing. Okay, so South Africa was a British colonial state that then became its own state but was run by a bunch of white British folks, right? M more or less, although most white people in South Africa aren't, descended from people from Britain. They're descended from um, mainly people from sort of the low countries, Netherlands, and to some extent France, the Afrikaner people. They, they have their own language called Afrikaans. It's like a very... Afrikaner, right? Old, 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 old version of Afrikaans. It's a, Afrikaans. Old sort of a related to Dutch. Um, but the national language is English? Well, for many years it was English and Afrikaans. And n today there are, I think, over nine uh, languages because the since the coming of democracy that they've recognized the African language. But um, but it's what year are we talking about that it's like a British state? Was like the what nineteen? I mean eighteen hundreds or something like that. That uh, the British 
um, replaced the Dutch settlement and sort of drove the Afrikaners inland, um, but established their control over South Africa really in the... 1800 uh, sometimes. Um, right, in, uh, solidly in the 19th century. They defeated a sort of rebellion of, of the Afrikaners at the beginning of the 20th century and created a sort of semi-independent um, self-governing region in, in the same way that Canada or Australia was self-governing by this point. Okay, so okay. Into the beginning of the 20th century. So the Queen was kind of officially over... Like just like the Queen is over Australia and right, Canada, right? I mean, uh, I mean that's a on paper, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, in in um, the w once the um, the sort of Afrikaner nationalist white supremacist party, the National Party, came to power, um, I, I think in 1948, they they set a course to separate their ties from the British Commonwealth and to establish themselves um, as a separate republic without any, any any ties to Britain anymore. And so when I'm talking to my coworker, I'm saying like, okay, look here, sister, you got a society that is X percent black, which is what, 70%, 80% black? I mean, so, so, so South Africa is interesting and, and complicated because th there are African people who speak African languages, which is s seven out of 10 people um, are African people speaking African languages. But then there are other sort of non-white groups a lot of uh, people came as indentured servants um, from India. So there's a significant sort of South Asian minority. There are people who were kind of a Creole people. Majority non-white. Uh, absolutely majority non-white, right. Um, White population is what, 20%, 10%, 30%? More like 15%. I 15%-ish. I I who think. knows? You're not an expert, but you're playing one on the PRC show today. Um, so... The, the minority, f whatever that is, 15%, maybe 20%, or the people that run the country. They the the national party, the, the sort of the, the party of white supremacy, sort of led by Afrikaner nationalists, took the British colonial system and said, "Let's see if we can't do it one better. Let let's create a state which is is built around um, explicit racist um, language and, and concepts. Let's make sure that uh, our position of supremacy is it's hyper racism." It's, it's, I'm, I'm coining this term for future scholars. It sounds like a hyper racist state. You got to have cards if you're black. You got it right. You got to have these like, um, you know, well, it's kind of like what's going on in uh, Palestine, I guess, right now. <laughs> but let's not get into that. But it's, um, it's, you can't have certain jobs. It's, you know, obviously right. we we know the f the story of. Uh, Rosa Parks in this country, and you know uh, segregation, but it's like, it's even like more official, where t than the United States. Y y yes, um, I mean th the difference with the United States, I think, is that the original indigenous people, um, in in large parts of the United States, are simply gone. Right. But in Southern Africa, they're still the overwhelming majority of the population, and yet they were economically and, and socially legally marginalized. W Nelson Mandela went to university and uh, became a lawyer, and he was, in the 1950s, he and his partner, Oliver Tabo, were the only black lawyers in Johannesburg, right? In a majority black country. Yes. Um, <laughs> so um, he, it, it was... Uh, a remarkable situation of, of inequality and injustice. And I should also point out, underpinned by incredible coercive violence. Um, if anyone stepped out of line, um, you know, 
and and also if there was a piece of land or a situation that um, the the minority wanted to advantage themselves for, they would move whole groups of people, clear whole pieces of land, um, exile people to rural areas, split up families. They had they had the power to do this, and if people went on strike, if people um, spoke up, people could be put in prison or uh, arrested or tortured. What's interesting about this, that's uh, for when I'm talking to my coworkers about this, is that in the United States during the same time, it's the majority oppressing the minority. So the majority of this country is white. I think it's now maybe a less than 70%, but at that time it might have been 80. Um, and uh, it was mostly in the South, where there's a higher percentage of African Americans. But in South Africa, it was it was flipped, basically. So the minority... Although if you think about places like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, that... Um, uh, Racial balance is different. I mean, yeah, maybe the the in those cities it might have the been almost the forty, the 50, the 40 the 60. Well, there are a lot of counties in, um, I, I think, in Mississippi and Alabama, w which have a black majority, and there are interesting parallels. Without going too far down this road, I mean, the state of Mississippi, like the government of South Africa under apartheid, had whole departments established to sort of measure racial characteristics. Um, for example, how how black is someone? Should we should we qualify them as as, as black or qualify oh, them right, as white the or something in the between? The paper bag test and let's all that let's stuff. Let's, yeah. let's put a pencil in your hair and see if it falls out. This right. This sort Absurd, of thing. Absurd. Yeah. Right. This this led to great fun in South Africa when, for example, you know, later on, uh, in, in into the seventies and into the into the eighties, South Africa wanted to sort of break out of its economic isolation, wanted to engage with, say, Japan, which is obviously not a European country. So you have to figure out ways to square the circle and sort of grant people honorary white status and this sort of thing. Okay, so uh, Nelson Mandela gets thrown in jail for nobody knows. Nobody knows in my hospital. I asked everybody in my hospital. I surveyed them. That's obviously not true. But I, I said, why does Nelson, you know, if I would ask them, I don't think anybody would know because I don't know. And I know I'm probably the smartest person in my hospital. That's a joke. But um, <laughs> I'm going to have to edit that out. Uh, so... So Nelson Mandela goes to jail for some sort of, I'm guessing, civil disobedience. Is that the deal? He's saying, hey, I'm tired of this. You know, we need to have equality. We need to have these ridiculous rules of uh, racial apartheid. Apartheid is segregation by race, and you have to have, uh, um, what is apartheid? Uh, apartheid is, is an Afrikaans word, which simply means separateness. Okay, did you guys hear that, the way I said apartheid and the way Gabe said it? For some reason, this drives me insane. It upsets me. I mean, it's not a big problem, but when people say um, foreign words in, like, the colloquial or the native accent, it, um, I feel like they're rubbing it in, that they're more, they're more intelligent than me. And I know I straddle this fence of, you know, being an intelligent guy and kind of being, like, an everyman dumb guy, but... Frankly, um, that for some reason really uh, gets my goat. <laughs> People still say that. No, I don't say things like um, regarding Salvador Allende. I don't say Allende because he has two uh, L's, and that's like a we all know two L's sounds like a Y, so you'd say Allende. I don't say Chile. I say the country is Chile. But I don't feel like when I say Chile that I'm sounding like a native uh, Latin American. And I have a friend, and you know who you are, that when you say Spanish words, you sound like you're a native from that country. 
you all of a sudden change from your American accent saying a Spanish word to like an indigenous person. And um, I don't know why I find that annoying. Do other people find that annoying? Anyways, I'm going to play this part again. You're going to hear me say apartheid, and you're going to hear Gabe say it again. In fact, he stutters a little bit, and I think that's because he's trying to say it so correctly. He wants to get the uh, enunciation and the pronunciation right just to rub it in my face. Now, am I overthinking that? Maybe I am. Maybe that's uh, me being a little bit um, of a narcissist or uh, overthinking things. He's probably just thinking how to say the word and doesn't give a crap about my own insecurities about language. But anyways, on to the rest of the show. What is apartheid? Uh, apartheid is is a Afrikaans word which simply means separateness. But it's um, it's the U.S. separate but equal, but it, more it, official. It's right? a, a it's a v extreme comp a complex of uh, segregation, like a Jim Crow, basically. It, it it's a it's a distant cousin, right? Okay. Um. So here he, here's what's striking about Mandela as as a young man, as as a young activist. He joined an organization called the African National Congress, which had been started by. Um, some intellectuals and, and, and clergymen who believed sort of in the British tradition that they could go and petition uh, the government to get redress of their concerns and had for decades n not made very much progress. And he and his comrades in particular, um, I met the man who recruited him to the African National Congress, a man named Walter Sisulu, believed that they needed to radicalize the ANC, that they needed to uh, create a youth league that would drive the whole organization to be more Is confrontational. Is the ANC uh, illegal at this time? At, at, at this point, it was a legal, a legal organization. Um, in, in the 40s and into the 50s, it's a legal organization. It hasn't been outlawed yet. It's like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or the NAACP in the United States? or Maybe may, may comparable to the NAACP. But, th but th they took a view a little bit more like the, sort of the, the firebrands of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the U.S. They said, we have to be aggressive and confrontational, using nonviolence, but through direct action. They took a page from sort of the Gandhian experience, and, and Gandhi, by the way, developed a lot of his tactics. And this is the 50s. This is in the 50s, but um, they um, took inspiration from what the Indian minority in South Africa had done. Gandhi, as a young man, and um, had developed a lot of his direct action um, civil disobedience tactics in South Africa. And so working with Indians, but on their own, defying the laws which were discriminatory. And at the same time, Martin Luther King is doing his sort of thing. This is like a parallel. That, that there are some parallels, that's right. I mean, I mean time-wise. I mean, s mean, like, they don't even probably know what's going on because we don't have the internet and Twitter, but they're both sort of doing the same things. No, I mean, no. they might, they may be, right. hey, they're, but they're focused on their own struggles. No, th th there are some parallels. No, and, and throughout the 50s, um, Mandela and his, his comrades, um, like Walter Sisulu and Oliver Tambo, took an organization which had been um, not especially powerful and made it bigger and made it more forceful and more aggressive and took it into collaboration with um, the sort of the, the Indian civil rights organizations um, and also with... Um, left-wing uh, mm -hmm. white activists and uh, trade unionists, trade unionists in the black community, and created a pretty powerful movement. Um, and Nelson Mandela, again, what does he do? Do he, Does he take a gun and robs a bank and tries to uh, get funds and that's why he gets in prison? Or what? How do we know why? Does anyone know? N no, it, no it's, it, 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 it's, it's very clear. I mean, 
the the state responded to the advance of an aggressive nonviolent campaign with uh, violent repression, um, with uh, the the repression of demonstrations, with the arrest and imprisonment of activists, ultimately with opening fire into whole crowds of people protesting peacefully. And so this is more violent than the U.S. civil rights movement in the sense of the state repression against. No, it it absolutely was that, um, and what happened is that Mandela and, and his comrades. Uh, reached a conclusion that nonviolence had run its course. And so Mandela ends up going to prison, um, or actually facing the death penalty on charges of organizing essentially armed insurrection against the state. So he was just sort of picked up. Uh, it's time to pick him up and stop this. It wasn't a particular act. Well, he, he and his colleagues... Um, I mean they, I'm sure there was some trumped-up charge, but it was... Th- well, th- no, they began organizing an armed wing of their movement to... Engage in sabotage and resist the state. Okay, Th- they abandoned the path of nonviolence. Okay, so they're like nonviolence, and, and and all of this is, is is explained and laid out in their own uh, discussions and, and presentations. I really need to read that uh, long road to freedom. We need right. all everyone should read that, right? I, I I think it's a great starting place. I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a strong autobiography. That's they they decided that it was time to engage in armed struggle. That that they had run the course, uh, and that they were they were facing a kind of a fascist state. Um, and it was not possible to do what Gandhi had done to the British. Uh, that w- that that was their their starting point more than what was happening in the U.S. They thought they were in a different well, situation. Well, because it's happening si- almost simultaneously, so they well, probably well, wouldn't well, even. Well, and well, Martin Luther King was having more effect because he got the civil rights. L- well, this is fifties. When does he go to prison? He goes to prison in. And so he he's he he was arrested before he w- he ended up uh, going on trial for his life. Um, but it in in it, it's really the early the early sixties this comes comes to a head, that the Af- I mean the African National Congress has be been made an illegal organization, um, you know trade union activists and ANC activists, um, and activists in other sectors were being arrested, uh, th- you know the use of torture became widespread by the state, um, and they decided it was time to engage in in armed struggle. They d- they weren't particularly good at it at first. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of um, Sixty-four to eighty-two, he was on Robben Island. R- right. So, um, he and his uh, several of his colleagues went on trial for their lives. It was it, it wasn't clear whether or not they'd be executed, but he ended up going um, being service uh, sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, and he and a number of his comrades were sent to a place called Robben Island, which is an island off ver- very near Cape Town. It's actually visible from Cape Town um, a lot of the time, um, but it's a you know, well, wi- windswept rock where and he in the United States, to spend the rest um, of his life. And maybe I'm being uh, a patriotic American here and whatnot, but I think from uh, in the 50s and early 60s, there is some gains in success with the U.S. civil rights movement with nonviolence that actually says to the movement, let's kind of continue doing this. Would you say that's right? That we don't need to pick up guns because we have, first off, well, with Kennedy being killed in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But, I mean, by that point, no, I'm not saying that Mandela is looking over at the U.S. and all that. But um, there's definitely two uh, s- different. Sh- c- certainly. I mean, I, n- Nelson Mandela and his, um, his comrades saw the South African state by the early 60s as, as a fascist state. They didn't compare it with the Kennedy administration or the Johnson administration. They didn't well, and John F. Kennedy called Coretta Scott King when 
No, no, no. President was calling no. the the wife of Nelson Mandela. No, that's right. The, no matter <laughs> yeah. what the state of Mississippi was doing or the city of Birmingham and Alabama was doing, there was always the uh, the federal government. There was the um, you know Department of Justice. You could call Nicholas Katzenbach. You could call America's Robert, a great Robert, place. Ke- Robert Kennedy. America is great. I'm saying it's different. That <laughs> there's no one like that to call when. Well, there's more well, when the people who are the, the in the leadership of the of the state were. Um, protesting on the Nazi side during World War II. Some of them had been interned by the British or, or the, the British-aligned state because they preferred that Hitler had won the war. Um, that was where they started, and, and that was the ideological underpinnings of the National Party. It was pretty stark. Right, right. Okay, so... Um, Again, so he he's accused of what he's accused. He goes his his life's on the line. Why don't they just kill him? What was the reason for that? Do, do I have to send my listeners to the uh, Wikipedia here? I, Nelson Mandela uh, kept uh, a diary where he he sort of lays out his reasoning about the sh- the shift to armed struggle. He kept a number of records. He asked his his comrades to destroy those when he was in the underground and in hiding, and they decided oh. that they needed to keep it. Um, when a group of his of, of his comrades were arrested at a, um, a place called Lilliesley Farm, um, they uh, all of these records were discovered. They were literally hidden under a pile of coal in a box, and so it, it was not a question of whether or not Mandela had been involved in a. So it's a for plan. treason. It's like a treason. Like you're you're uh, an enemy of the state, and we you're an en- you're an enemy of the state who is planning arm arm armed struggle. Arm, arm struggle. So that's why you will be executed. It was a capital. It was a capital offense, and I I think that um, the court decided on leniency if if, if life sentence is, is leniency if, if only to avoid creating a martyr. Martyr. Okay. Okay. Very very good. So so listeners, we now know why Mandela was in jail. He was in jail because he did the civil civil disobedience for so long. He was a lawyer in the Gandhi tradition. Um, was Martin Luther King? He was more of a f- philosopher. He was a reverend. He wasn't a lawyer, but he was smart enough to be a lawyer. Anyways, they try this nonviolence type of thing. They see it's not getting anywhere. And and honestly, in the United States, there was definitely lynchings and murders, but there wasn't bullets in the back and stuff like that. There was hoses. There was dogs. But there was—I mean—there was the four f- kids of the Alabama church bombing and all that stuff. But in South Africa, it was worse. There was guns, type of deal, blown people. You know, there was some u- ultra violence. Um, okay, so he goes to jail in 1962, and then, uh, what year were you born? I was born in 1975. You were born in 1975, and then, 75, so uh, Mandela had been on the island for <laughs> over a decade yeah. by the time I came so into then, the world. So then, 70, so he was in jail in 1962, then 75 you were born, then 19 years later, you go to the election. Maybe not the election or the campaign to the election in 1994. But let's stop back. What happens? How does he get out of jail? You know, why would he get out of jail? There's the. I'm going to do a little bit of a 1980s. Everybody knows this. My coworkers, I can tell them this. There's all kinds of um, protests about, for Pete's sake, the South Africans. Let's get it together here. You're really treating um, uh, blacks like shit here. You know, this is a terrible society we live in, and it's 1980. America's looking. You got Ronald Reagan as the president, and still, you know, uh, we got uh, more racial equality than South Africa. So there's protests. There's the big ones are 
there's the economic boycotts and sanctions, but the more effective ones are the sports ones, right? People like their sports. There's the banning of the Olympics to get them. Bo- How did that work out again? I I think that economic sanctions w- were taking a toll, a serious toll, by the eighties, and the I- the isolation of the state was. And what does that mean, economic sanctions? That means like we are not even going to do business with any company that operates. So uh, we're not buying right. rubber from. Uh, we're not buying any uh, this from South Africa. Well, you do business South Africa, but we're not dealing with you. That's going to hurt. It, it, I mean, it, it's a complicated story, but there were there were governments in different parts of the world that passed laws that said we won't have economic trade with you. Um, and then there are situations where there were companies that would invest in South Africa and students or this tra- is an international movement. Y- yes. Here. Sorry to interrupt a- you here, but this absolutely. is but this is starting around the world. What's your sense here? I know you're not a scholar, but this is probably thi- I like this little protest style. This is a new, you know, probably what, 70s, 80s or is this 80s? Really late 70s? Who would even think of this? Whoever thought of this, whoever this person is, I'm going to I'm, I'm christening them now a saintly type of figure because it's very creative. This is a very creative way. I mean, who would think to right. do that? Well, And for it to be effective, for right. Pete's sake, I, I mean, that, that is uh, an amazing way to, to, to put bring pressure. I mean, that, well, that is an yeah. astonishing. I mean, to, to make a long story short, that the armed struggle or guerrilla resistance against apartheid was never determinative. It never reached a point of... You know, mass insurrection, and it's barbaric, and it's violent, and it's what was more, what was know. more successful, what was more effective, was the campaign of of exiles, the people who escaped the the net of of the regime, who in Africa, but in Europe and other parts of the world, reached out and began organizing to isolate the regime, and it, it had a, a very strong effect. At the same time that trade unionists were rising up and organizing in South Africa. Students were mobilizing. It reached a point in the 80s where the the strategy of of these movements inside the country was literally to make the state ungovernable. So the the white minority, white supremacist regime is facing economic isolation on the national or international scene and um, intense civil conflict internally. And that's what began to change the story, so that they started looking for a way out. Um, and through this whole time, Nelson Mandela, from within prison, communicating secretly with his comrades on the outside, is thinking through a strategy of how he's going to get these people to the negotiating table, how the people who have killed his comrades, have tortured his comrades, has put him in, life, uh, in, in, in prison for life and isolated him from his family, how he's thinking through how he's going to get out and get to the negotiating table to get the white minority regime to agree to to, to, a, to agree to give up their power. I mean that's uh, that's pretty phenomenal. I would again. I, the, I'm the type of person that I hold grudges. <laughs> you can't. I would not be good in this situation. I mean, he's somebody that sounds like he does not hold a grudge. I think he had, well, as, as you pointed out earlier, he had a lot of time to think this through. <laughs> uh, yeah. And s- sometimes Robben Island is actually called the university in that the, the cadre of the movement who ended up there spent a lot of time thinking through and debating a lot of stuff. And although, of course, they had didn't have perfect access to all the information in the world, they consumed all the media that they could get their hands on, and they debated it and thought it through. And as generations of activists would get arrested, they would end up in this prison with people like Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu and Ahmed Kathrada and others, they 
some of them would get released earlier, or would go back into the movement, or would go into exile. It, it was a natural sort of center for thinking these things right. through. Well, I mean, it's it's, but it's still a testament to the best of the human spirit. And the the thing I think about is, um, are you familiar with Thomas Borges, the Nicaraguan revolutionary kind of Catholic Marxist type of guy? Well, um, so he was like a Sandinista type. Sandinista. He was a Sandinista. And his like uh, wife was like raped and murdered in front of him, both of which he had like a blindfold on um, during the uh, Somoza years. I mean, can you imagine that? If that happened, I would be, I mean, my life would be destroyed and I would want to cause nothing but pain and torture to anybody that did that to my wife and to their family and to their children and to every, I mean, that's how I would think. That's how I am wired, I think. So the Sandinistas get in power. Then some of the Sandinistas are getting a little bit off, they're getting a little unhinged. You know what I mean? They're getting a little ultraviolet, and he there was a uh, there's some famous thing where there was like a, um, a riot or something like that, and they were taking up some of these uh, some of the soldiers, and he breaks it up and he says, "Hey, hey, let's not be how they treated us." So is that? I mean, this oh. is a guy that was. Uh, so th- 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 this th- is insane. So this. I mean, th- this is a beautiful thing in a way, okay. but uh, no, th- what you just said, literally word for word, Mandela produced a very similar analysis that. Um, if I come out of prison and want to replicate on the white minority what's happened to my people, then it seems that I am affirming what the apartheid regime is about. Yes. That I, yeah. I have to create a different order and I have to reverse this. And I, so I, I think there's a very serious personal and moral piece at, at work here, but I also think that very shrewdly Mandela and his comrades understood what was happening geopolitically as well. Right. So he sees the tide sort of turning. There's a momentum. There's a movement. So, I mean, w- he, he came out of prison in, in February of 1990. Right? Now, why did he come and out of prison? Let, you know, I'm talking to my coworkers again. Let's get back uh-huh. to that. I'm saying my coworkers, this guy's in prison from, I thought it was 92. We're going we're gonna to go back here to, the, uh, to Wikipedia. Anyways, he's in prison. And then there's this organized movement that really starts to gain a lot of traction. International, really percolates in the 80s, but becomes the uh, almost like a worldwide movement of everybody's talking about it, almost a cause celeb. Well, yeah, and, and, and that, that was also an in intentional decision Inten- yeah. of the African National Congress yeah. to make him um, sort of the, literally the face of, of the movement. Um, and I, I was a, it was a very powerful choice. And wh- what's interesting is that si- since the early 60s, no one in South Africa itself had seen a picture of his face. That yes, that it was illegal. It was like illegal to have exactly. like... Exactly. This is like in a science fiction or a so fantasy. When when he walked when he walked out of prison in 1990, people on seeing the images live on television were seeing th- this face of this leader for the first time in almost 30 years. And I'll tell you what, this brings up a this is a very tangential point, but this brings up so much anger in me when I hear this because I know Nelson Mandela should have all the statues and all that stuff. I want there to be statues about the people that made those rules that you can't see his face that should be imprisoned. There should be a statue of Bull Connor. Does everyone know who Bull Connor is? Possibly the worst American of the 20th century. Who knows? He was a... Uh, who's Bull Connor? He's a racist um, sh- mayor of South uh, of uh, Atlanta, Alabama. Um, white pride. Just any... The, the enemies of progress should not be forgotten. And and that that not to punish their families and stuff like that, but in some in some in some sense, I think they they should be meant to atone for their sins. 
Anyway, sorry, to, that's a little bit of an aside. But um, that is so insane. that Because here's the thing. These family members or these people that were uh, part of this, they're, they're, they exist. They're still around. And wh- wh- where were they at? You know where they're at? They're probably living in some mansion up in uh, Cranberry, PA, or who knows, somewhere in uh, England or somewhere outside of Africa. These people have never suffered. This guy suffered for 27 years. Do, have the people, oh, no, they, got, they left their country, their fake country, really. What happened to them? And, and Nelson Mandela didn't punch them because he's a saint of a man. But I'm not saying they should be tortured or anything like that, but they should have some hardship. I, I, I don't think Nelson Mandela was a saint. I, I think he made... Very difficult. Well, neither was John Lennon in a sense because he was a bad father to his first kid. But, but, but I'm no, saying no, no, in, in, in I, the I, sense I, I of mean the word. In, ter- in terms of the, the political choices that he made, I, I think they were moral and profound, but also I think deeply shrewd and particular to the strategic situation that his movement was in. So he, here was the point I was about to make. So he comes out of prison in 1990, right? Um, he went why does he? Uh, we don't know why he comes out of prison. No, well we got We got to get he, this. He, he, he's released from prison because be of the movement of the, the international pressure. Because the international pressure and the insurrection inside the state have reached a point where uh, a relatively newly elected leader of of, of the regime, F. W. De Klerk, made a decision. We'll release w- the steam kettle valve it type it of thing. It like, it hey, let's. This might it help. It it's time to to legalize the ANC, to legalize the South African Communist Party, to re- start releasing leaders, including Mandela, and to negotiate with them with a hope to create a situation where some of the privileges, some of the security of of the white minority will be retained. I think that's what he's thinking. He's like, this is is going down and maybe I can sort of, that's right. We can have some sort of. Right. So, so bear in mind when Mandela goes into prison in the early sixties, right? It's the height of the cold war. Um, many of his closest comrades are in fact communists. Sure. Uh, they they look to the um, sort of the revolutionary third world. They look to the Soviet Union and its allies and, and and satellites for help. So he's coming out of prison the year after the Berlin Wall falls, right? So I think they understand that at the same time that the apartheid regime is weakening and collapsing, that the the Soviet system, that the whole sort of system. Uh, global structure of, uh, of communism is, is coming to an end. And he, th- there have been discussions which he's been in communication with, with his comrades in, in exile, trying to engage, um, starting in the late 80s, secret meetings between people in the white minority and people in the ANC talking through, well, what would it look like to live in a, a non-racial democracy? Would we still have rights? Would we have civil rights? What about our property? What about our businesses? In other words, are you going to come and hang us from lampposts? Are you going to take our houses? Are you going to take our businesses? Mm-hmm. Are we going to have some security in what we have? And I think that Mandela and his comrades took a decision that it was important morally but also strategically to have uh, to offer some dignity and also some security to the white minority to help them figure out how to give up their stranglehold Same on the face. majority. I say say face, but also just sort of stand down without triggering um, bloodbath, a, a, a mass conflagration. And this, by the way, at a time when, while they were negotiating, I should point out that the the regime, the apartheid regime, was also trying to figure out ways to how to get groups of, um, if I can say, sort of reactionary groups of 
uh, of Africans to sort of make war on the ANC and its allies. So there were parts of the country where there was uh, intense violence between, for example, supporters of fringe the elements like of, of the, the the Zulu nationalist uh, yeah. Ikata movement engaging in. Uh, sort of uh, violence against ANC supporters. There were ANC supporters who were sort of bringing that violence back on, on the other side. And Mandela systematically thought through a process which would say, no, we're going to give assurances to the white minority. What does that mean? Well, for example, that the first government should be a, um, a coalition government, that there, w that there would be ministers from the old regime in, in the in in the new system. I'm in prison for twenty seven years. I come out, the people that killed some of my friends and tortured some of my friends and then prison me, I'm gonna say, but I'm gonna we're gonna like uh, shake hands and, and join together and right. still create this no. new I mean so some of the people thinking this through, I mean, are are people who have um are the unlikeliest people to develop these compromises. That has this uh, been s has this been done anywhere else? I wonder. Well, I mean, it, it, it really became a kind of a, a global model. Um, the, the, the this idea that there would be a sunset clause where the sort of a grandfathering in some of the power of the old regime in in, in the first government was something that's credited to Joe Slovo. Uh, his wife was blown apart by a bomb that the South African secret police sent to her home. Yeah, um, this is what I, so I, he, I, I he, so hard. He, he's coming back from exile collaborating with Mandela and he's helping develop this at the negotiating table. Um, so, you know, they... Um, and Joe Slavo is a white guy, right? Yeah, he was. He was He was a Jewish communist, Jewish communist yeah. right. Um, uh, th they decided, uh, for example, that people who committed... And, th and this is one of the things that I think is most interesting, most controversial about the South African model, that in addition to setting up um, a non-racial democratic system, that one aspect would be that there wouldn't be witch hunts or prosecutions of people who committed human rights this abuses. This is the Truth and Reconciliation that Committee. Exactly, that, that there would be a process whereby someone who committed human rights abuses could, if they told the truth, would essentially get a pardon. And this is the hardest thing I would have. I mean, this is, I think, as somebody that considers myself a, uh, I'm saying this for the first time, a uh, agnostic Christian. Well, I'm not really, so let's scratch that. But I do like the idea of... Um, uh, turn the other cheek. I think that is a very good thing for humanity. And so that's essentially what that is. Because we can't be barbarians and stab each other in the eye and all that stuff. Um, uh, it's so hard. It's the most difficult thing to do, I think, really, of, uh, and, and of, uh, of a human being with someone that you love or is hurt to then just say, well, it's not good for me to do that to them. Because it really isn't, because then they're children and all that stuff, and you just keep perpetuating this stuff. Um, and I'm not a hippie, I'm not a pacifist and all that, but, man, that, that is uh, very insightful and uh, pretty remarkable, you know. So look, just to back up a little bit, at the same time, so Mandela and his team are sort of thinking through how to work this out. This is 91, 92. Right. So in, in this period before the first elections in the early 90s, they're negotiating this with the representatives of the white What's minority What's his position? Regime. Just head of the ANC or he's like, he's when, just... Well, when he came out of prison, he wasn't head of the ANC. His, his old law partner from back in the 50s, Oliver Tambo, who had been in exile, was the president of the ANC. But Tambo was in poor health. Mandela was eventually um, <coughs> elected as the next president of, of the ANC. So... 
his negotiating team uh, is engaging with with the regime. But bear in mind, there are all these people who had been in exile. Some of them had been engaging sort of guerrilla warfare, bombings, people who had been expecting to come back to sort of invade and overwhelm guerrilla the Guerrilla warfare state. bombings in 70s, 80s, or 90s? Yeah, yeah exactly. 70s? Uh, 70s and 80s, yes, yeah. 80s, and but not 90s. But like it's, it's petering out in the late 80s? Well, it, in in some ways, it was it it, it was they were attempting to in, in, start it up in, again, increase the pace of it. Meanwhile, inside the country, there are people who've been organizing unions, organizing youth groups, to engage in sort of strikes and struggle in the streets. People who hope for a revolution, right? And so, at the same time, he's negotiating, and his team is negotiating with the, the white minority regime. They have to figure out how to transition this movement that was hoping for revolution into a democratic transition process. Um, you know, one of the key leaders of um, the guerrilla arm of the, the ANC in, in exile they was... Oh, I hate that. They would all be like, well, are you kidding me? So I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, the, the young lions, that was the term for, for young people who were who gave their lives to the struggle. They dropped out of school. They were fighting in the streets. Maybe they went into exile. And now we're going to sit down with these young and fascists. And they to make bombs. Exactly. So the they killed my mom and killed my dad so and killed my uncle who were fighting for freedom and revolution. The person who, who went to explain this to them, why it was important to negotiate, was a man named Chris Hani, who was the, um, one of the key leaders of the arm wing of the ANC. He was a senior communist. Um, but he stood with Mandela on this position that it was time to negotiate. And then... In 1993, he was assassinated by a white supremacist, and oh my God. so yeah, of, co of course the nation erupts, um, and the, the the trade unionists, the youth activists, the young lions are, are out in the streets. They're fighting with the cops, and once again, Mandela has to say to them, "We need to scale back. We need the to way the way to win, the way to deliver the world that Chris Hani wanted, is actually to, to create a democracy and win an election." Yeah, and. By force of organization and force of will, he succeeds, right? It, it is remarkable um, how many ways it could have gone so, oh, certainly. wrong. <laughs> okay, so we could talk about this for ages. But when you're 19 years old, you probably don't even know all this at the time, maybe. I don't know. You end up going to South Africa through... Why did you go to South Africa and you were on a Christian mission trip or what was... A no. Um... I had made friends with um, people who had been uh, ANSI supporters and uh, in exile, and had gone back into the country. And I you made friends in, with ANSI supporters in where at? Where well, in, in you're because you're from Indianapolis or Indiana. I, I I grew up in Indiana. I went to high school in Canada, and I had the opportunity to to meet y young people whose family had been part of okay. the um, supporters of the ANSI. So I was working in Africa as a young person. I thought I was going to go down and you taught like you did. Were you like a teaching assistant, right? I was, I was a teaching assistant at a school in Tanzania, a year prior in in ninety three to ninety four, and I said, it, "Since I'm here, and since this process is taking shape, that I needed to go down there. Um, I wanted to see it happen, and I wanted simply to volunteer. Um, so that's volunteer, what like what does that mean? With Jimmy Carter's like election committee." Uh, it, that wasn't really the flavor of it. Um, I. Uh, but we all know now Jimmy Carter does this thing where he monitors elections all around the world to see that they're fair and all that stuff. Uh, and he no, I wasn't interested in making sure the election was fair. I, I wanted to help 
Mandela and the ANC win the election. So I, so my friend, her mother was an activist in the teachers' union. She had helped merge her part of the union into the the, the ANC-aligned um, South African Democratic Teachers' Union, and she was also helping to organize a branch of the ANC. So in this period between 1990 and, and the election in 94, the ANC activists and activists who had been fighting the police and fighting the cops and in the underground were suddenly creating a legal Democratic Party and preparing for legal elections. And so then it was the time to actually run an election campaign. And so there were all kinds of international observers observing the process, but I didn't. I wanted to go and help elect the party that I thought should be running the country, which was Nelson Mandela's party. Who are you, Mr. Kramer, to go and help elect Nelson Mandela as a 19-year-old white Indiana young person? Like, <laughs> which I think is great and very admirable, and everyone on the show should admire you for that. But I mean, how did you? Um, this was friends from uh, you said the the teachers union in in Tanzania or the teachers union in America. Um, my friend Ruth, her mother Lynette, was um, a white woman who had been an ANC supporter. She had gone into exile to avoid going to prison, uh, and eventually had moved back to the country. Was teaching in in back South to what country? In South Africa. Back South in, Africa. Back okay. into South Africa okay. in, in the late eighties. She is t is she's teaching. Uh, and she gets her group of teachers to affiliate to the pro-ANC teachers' union. And as soon as the ANC becomes a legal organization, uh, in the early 90s, she helps start organizing the ANC at the local level. And how did you meet Ruth? In, in high school in Canada. Oh, okay. okay. That's what right. I... I'm sorry. I'm a little bit right. dense. So you met her in Canada. I, yeah, I met Ruth in Canada. Lynette, oh, okay. Lynette's so the mother. And she I, was I, a I ended up going to visit them in Cape Town and saying, what can I do to help? Okay, she was an exile in Canada. Or that's how... that's. Well, she was in, she 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 was in exile in 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 Africa in another country. Okay, okay, um, okay. So uh, fascinating. So you go there. What you're passing out flyers or knocking on doors or I mean, what what does what's the role of a? Are, are you sticking out like a sore thumb, by the way? Well, um, yes. What, and your, what do your parents think of this too? I mean, yes and no. Um, I'll come back to my parents in a second. <laughs> I mean, there's a significant white minority in Cape Town, and so if, if I'm walking around on the street, I don't look so strange. But then you're um, the enemy. Um, Although there's lefty whites. I think, I, I think, I think it just depends. I mean, I, I didn't go anywhere where I wasn't with um, trade unionists or with, with African National Congress. And so uh, I was there to support what they were doing. So if I went to a political rally, I was there with the comrades. If I was there at a branch meeting or at a union meeting, I was there with the comrades. And so, you know, obviously, I was only there for a few weeks at, at the end of the election. I was someone who came from another country, so they gave me tasks like handing out leaflets. So you were like an extra body, hanging, observing, hanging, hanging, hanging out posters. I, like, I, move I, this chair, it, here's a table, move I, this. Or in in the, the Socialist Party in the U.S., um, uh, Gene Debs referred to um, Jimmy Higgins. Jimmy Higgins is the guy who puts up the chairs at the beginning of the meeting and takes down the mm -hmm. chairs at the end of the meeting. And I was happy to do Jimmy Higgins' right, work. Right, right. Uh, I think on election day, I had a bicycle, and I was, like, riding between ANC branches to so deliver messages. So you helped elect Nelson Mandela. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we congratulate you for your efforts. That is very awesome. Um, we, we, we didn't carry the Western Cape province, by the way. That was the <laughs> one province that the old uh, 
party of the the apartheid, the National Party, actually won. And um, so, what did your but parents? I, I also, I don't think that's entirely my fault. So, <laughs> what did your parents think about you going there? Well, I think um, my mother had a, was was very proud. I think my mother was hoping that the ANC would win, and I, I think my father's view was simply that it was something that was was interesting and valuable for me to do, and he supported they it. They did not think it was dangerous. So well, if they did, they never said that. They to never me. said that. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I never felt in, in in danger when I was there. I mean, I I saw places because you were there with like family friends, basically. Well, but look, by the time the election happened in 1994, frankly, power in society w- was shifting. Shifting, yeah. right? I mean, I went to places to campaign where the police had ambushed and massacred young activists. Um, with shotguns, or I went. That to doesn't sound very safe. Gabe. I I went to houses. Uh, you know, I I walked by houses where, you know, guerrilla, guerrillas of the ANC hold up with grenades, like fought off the cops until they were overwhelmed. But by 1994, everybody knew that power in society had shifted, and everybody knew that there was no way that the old regime was going to win that election. Um, and things were changing, and I. Honestly, I didn't feel in danger. I felt like something was happening. I just wanted to be around. When did the election? When did you leave, and when did the election occur? I actually, I, I I was there on election day, so I saw people lining up to vote for the first times in their lives. No Um, kidding. And, um, you know, the the incidentally, and I I I only thought this through. The can you show me some pictures of this, or did you not take any? I didn't take my own pictures at the time, but there are some remarkable photographs from that. Yeah, you you can see sort of aerial photographs of long, long, long yeah. lines of people waiting to vote. You know, there are stories about people who came in, old people who were brought in wheelbarrows, right, to vote who had been denied the vote for their whole lives. Um, I, I mean, I remember seeing people in tears waiting. Oh, in sure, line, in, in sure. tears waiting waiting to vote. Um, but um, I I wasn't there actually for the. Results. I I I had to leave. I, I I flew out to see my family. Um, so I I watched the results. Uh, so you, th- I, you I, saw I, like I lines from the airplane. No <laughs> no no. Like I, I I saw the lo- I saw the voting on the day. Yeah. But it took a number of days before the results were declared. Yeah. Um. And uh, so I s- I saw Nelson Mandela sworn in. One of the things in their system is that that you don't have this like three month transition between November and January, that once the the votes were counted. That took some days. Then the the, the transition of power happened pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, oh, so you went, you left and visited your family, then you came back. I went. And I I, I, d- I actually didn't go back to South Africa for another three years, but I I watched um, the results and I watched Mandela being sworn in uh, on the BBC in uh, in Britain. Oh no, kidding. Yeah. When are we gonna have a uh, regime regime change here? <laughs> um, it may not look exactly the same. Um, <laughs> Well, that was sort of a joke. Um, well, any final thoughts? I thank you for your. I think I'm. I think I have uh, a better picture to explain to my coworkers. Um, anything I th- I should add to them about Nelson Mandela in South Africa that you think uh, would just be that you think you're missing? I think you hit a lot of the key points. Well, I I, I want to say that South African history doesn't end in 1994. That that. Mandela's government and the whole society dealing with the legacy and the what's well, been a struggle certainly right right dealing with the legacy and the problems of apartheid, dealing with you know the realities of 
global free trade and all those problems. But frankly, dealing with um, the complicated problems of suddenly being a large majority party and corruption and all the internal right. problems, that story is still unfolding. And having like one um, party that's sort of like we it, won. It, now it, it, we exactly. don't have a uh, now we don't have any debate. It's it's <laughs> that the, there there are serious concerns and problems to this day in South Africa, um, but I think that that transition from a, a fascist-inspired, racist, uh, undemocratic state to a state in which uh, everyone has a stake in the outcome um, that still has enormous social inequality but uh, has um, at least processes to, uh, to deal with social change and deal with people expressing their views. Um, I think that th th there are so many people who are responsible for the struggle that made that possible but um, the leadership of Nelson Mandela was central to making it work, and there, I and and that's why I, I, you know you come back to someone like Abraham Lincoln in American history. It, it's it's hard to put your finger in many places on one leader who who brings it together and had simply the political genius to make it work. In in retrospect, we look at them as saints. We look at them as sort of holy or or glorious moral people, but they were people who had a political genius and a, and a certain um, moral compass that made politics work. Well said. I mean, they're remarkable people, certainly. Well said, Gabe. Um, you know, I, I should finish on that note, but I just want to say this, because what you said resonates with me in the sense that it annoys me when you hear this statement of, as somebody that's a leftist or ultra-leftist, we are all leaders and we're all... Leadership is important. And you can't just have a consensus model uh, movement or leadership or society where we're all sort of sitting down and, and making the decisions by a consensus or um, roundtable vote. You do need to have uh, th those people. There are that sort of great men of history sort of thing uh, is uh, real. Well, we we could perhaps have another discussion about whether the the times make the the leader or the leader makes the times. I think the the, the times made Nelson Mandela, but he also had uh, qualities that that country and those people needed. Sure, sure. Well, thank you for coming on the show today, and I uh, appreciate it. That was great. All right, bye. Okay, so there you go. You don't need to go to a university to learn about South Africa and Nelson Mandela. You just heard Gabe talk about it. And I uh, thought we had a good conversation. Thank you so much, Gabe Kramer. Um, I'm going to try to get one up before Christmas, another show. And uh, I love Christmas. I'm really excited about it this year because I will be with my sweetie. All right. Have a good drive home. Wherever you're listening, be safe. Buckle up. Do people like this little ending here? I just hear all the mistakes and the sloppiness. Later. Thanks for listening to the PRC Show. 
Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash prcshow or follow us on Tumblr at prcshow.tumblr.com. All of these episodes can be found at soundcloud.com slash prcshow. Your host is Paul Robert Cooley Jr. Technological consultant, sound design, host curation, and music production is also by Paul Robert Cooley. Emotional support brought to you by the roommates of Salvador and Kate G. Executive producer is Josh Ferris. All labor's donated. Thanks for listening.